Well, what I want to do this morning with you is, in fact, I invite you to open your Bible this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In fact, maybe as you're opening to Romans chapter 8, put your finger back in John 14. I, I just want to extend one more week on our theme of heaven, our theme of heaven, and extend John 14, 1 through 7, just one more time with you. I exposited that uh, a few weeks ago on the fact that he goes and prepares a place for us. You see that in 14, 2. He addresses and says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, this wonderful statement, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That is a very uh, aggressive promise. I will come again, Jesus said, and I will take you to myself. And I just haven't been able to, to leave that thought, that I will take you to myself. It lingers in my mind and in my heart that not only is there a place called heaven, but there's a personalization of that, that Christ is not going to just take us to that place and promise us that place, but he's drawing us into himself in a far greater way where there will be the no, no presence of sin. He has, for the believer, promised you heaven. But I want to ask you a question this morning, and the question is this, is it the promise, heaven, the person of Christ, is it safe? He promised that to you, but is it safe? I mean, what if something happens to you along the way? Maybe you would say, he won't forfeit that promise to us, but what if I do something to forfeit that blessing along the way? Can heaven be forfeited? Is heaven safe? That's the question I'm asking you this morning. There is a strand of theology called Arminianism. Arminianism. Be clear, I've warned you before, that is not Armenians, the nationality, but it's a strand of theology called Arminianism. You say, well, what, is, what does that mean? It sounds like some kind of disease. Well, it's not. It is a theology. It is a theology. You say, where did that come from? It's named after a man. It's named after a theologian by the name of Jacob Arminius. That's his name. Jacob Arminius wrote and taught, and what became what he wrote and taught is Arminianism. And he is, was, a Dutch theologian. Now, that, I know there's a lot of Dutch farmers in here, uh, Dutch dairymen. He was a Dutch theologian. And he taught, one of the many things that he taught, is that you can lose your salvation he taught that actively. And I'd venture to say that 70% of you might have grown up believing that. And it's not just a, a minor doctrine. It is a dangerous doctrine. 
He taught that you can lose it. You could have it, then you can lose it. You could possess it, then you could forfeit it. It is known as the Arminian view, the Wesleyan view, sometimes it is called. And in that position, you can't have eternal security. In fact, far from it, you should actually live with eternal insecurity. You may do something. Oh, Christ might not change his mind, but you may change your mind, and you don't know if you're going to do something to forfeit the salvation you have. And so as he promised this in John 14, I just couldn't get away from it. I just couldn't get away from the promise. I couldn't get away from your eternal protection plan. I couldn't get away from our eternal security that is promised in the Bible. And beloved, from the scriptures, our eternal security is not dependent even on our efforts. But it is built and based on the promises of God and on the promises of Christ and through the power of God granted to us in the scripture. If Jesus told you, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also, I'm going to take you to myself, then I want you to know that we can trust that. We can trust that. So let me just extend this one more time to you. You know, when people put out wrong doctrine, it can mess you up. I don't know know another way to say it. It just can mess you up. That far from rejoicing in the joy that should be in your salvation, that all your sins are forgiven, it can send you into the counselor's chair because you live with eternal insecurity that you can do something that would undo Christ's love for you. But the scriptures promise, as we've walked through John, in John 3.15, whoever believes in him may have eternal, what? Life. The promise of salvation, as we know, is eternal life. If you believe in him, you are the possessor right now of eternal life. It begins at your salvation, but it will continue. Jesus said in John 6, 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give you. He's going to give you that And once he gives you that, he doesn't take it away. John 6, 47, he who believes, Jesus said, has eternal life. Jesus said in John 6, 51, I am the living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, in other words, if he appropriates me, it says he will live forever. So how can you live forever in statement and then somehow do something to forfeit it? In fact, it's life through all eternity. It's not a one-year contract, okay? LeBron, is it okay to mention that in the pulpit? Just signed with the Lakers, woohoo, um, for four years. Okay, it's a four-year contract. Salvation doesn't work like that. Once you come to Christ, once your heart is opened, as Tyler shared with us at the men's retreat, He lays his hand upon you and sets his love upon you. And he does that in time and space in our life. But he set that love on us before the foundation of the world. It lasts forever. 
your salvation, your grasp of heaven doesn't have an expiration date on it. Jesus said in John eleven twenty six, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, what? Die. He says in John 10, 28, I love that phrase, I give them eternal life. In other words, everlasting life. Your salvation is forever settled in glory. In fact, it says there in John 10, 28, they shall or never will perish. Beloved, I don't know another way to, to capture this. But let me pack it this way. You can't be justified, then become unjustified. You can't be declared righteous and then be declared at another time unrighteous. I mean, I'm just smiling as I think about that because that's impossible. You can't be adopted into his family and then unadopted. As though God's got some eraser in heaven and crosses you off the book of life. You can't be chosen from the foundation of the world and then become unchosen. You can't be saved, truly saved, and then become unsaved. We understand they went out from us. They were never really of us. They went out from us that it may prove that they were not of us, 1 John 2. We understand that. But I I presuppose here that I'm talking to many believers here today. You can't be born again and then unborn again. You will never be lost because of God's love. You will never be lost because of Christ's love. Now if you're in chapter 13, the motive of all of this, look back to John 13, one chapter previous... The motive of all of this is the love of Christ. And as we begin John 13 to 17, the upper room discourse, okay, that text, those five chapters say more about the love of Christ for his own than any other place in all of the scripture. I believe that. It's a tremendous section on his love for his own. And there is a verse that has just caught me and I, I can't get away from it. And it's that verse in 13.1. Would you look back at it with me? He said, before the feast of the Passover, okay, so it's Thursday, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, this phrase, having loved his own who were in the world, and then underline this, he loved them to the end. I've not been able to leave that phrase for three weeks. He loved them to the end. In fact, my wife was asking me one day what that meant, and the more I began to dig on it, the more I thought, oh, this is tremendous. He loved them, speaking of Jesus, to the end. So what does that mean, to the end? It's the Greek word teleos. One said that he loved, it means this, that he loved completely. That he loves perfectly. That he loved fully. When it says their love to the end, you could even interpret it that he loved to the max. To the end, if you will. Both in terms of capacity and even on into eternity. 
In other words, he loved the disciples from start to finish, but he's not talking about the finish point here. He loves you so completely, as much as he can, that he loves you all the way to infinity, I guess you could say it that way. Your eternal security, let me put it this way, is yours because of Christ's love for you. And you need to let that sink in. Because of his love for you. In fact, look at John 13, 34. He states this all over. I'll just highlight a few. Little children, he says in 33, but look at 34. He says, 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, this phrase, just as I have loved you. In other words, you love one another as I have loved you. And he's demonstrating that and he will demonstrate that. That he's going to die on the cross for you. Look over at chapter 15. We'll get there in just a few months. Chapter 15. As the Father, and I'm in verse 9, has loved me, so I have loved you. You are loved by Jesus Christ. Look down in John 15, verse 13. That classic statement, greater love is no one than this. Then someone lay his life down for his friends. Greater love has no one than this. He died in our place. It's the love of Jesus Christ that holds you secure. It's the love of Jesus Christ that guarantees your salvation. Now what I want to do is just show you that one more time. Would you turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8, because I couldn't get away from John 13, 1, John 13, 34, John 15, 9, John 15, 13, without thinking of this verse in Romans 8, verse 35, in that series of questions that Paul asked, who shall separate us from, do you see it there, the love of Christ? In other words, Paul is arguing here in Romans chapter 8, the guarantee of heaven is unbreakable because of the love of Jesus Christ. In other words, I don't know if you've looked at it that way, is your salvation is secure, your salvation is safe because of Christ's love for you. You remember back, look in Romans chapter 8, 1, Paul said there, there is now, you know that one, therefore now no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's dealing again with the glories of the doctrine of justification. And he just comes out in that classic statement, there is therefore now no condemnation. And he's going to go all the way to say that there is no condemnation. And there is, at the end of Romans chapter 8, no separation. And there's no separation and no condemnation. Look at Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of the life of, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You've been set free from it. And then he begins to walk. You've been given the spirit. And you begin to obey the spirit because he transformed your life. I think it was a real joy for me on Friday night just to hear Tyler's testimony oozes out all over him his joy his life in Christ from what he was once 
before Christ. In other words, the Spirit of God is alive in him. And Paul just is delineating that doctrinally in Romans 8. Christ died, but then he gave you his Spirit. In fact, if you go all the way down, if you will, to Romans 8, 28, we know he says there that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to this, his purpose. He's working all things together for our good. And then he comes all the way down to chapter 8, and then in verse 31 through 39, he delineates our eternal security. Namely, that God is for us. And he puts it forth in a series of questions. Here's how secure it is. And by the way, when I read this to you, there are people who would not affirm this doctrine. Believers. Like, not like minor nuances. They, they would say, Scott, for you to get up and teach eternal security, that's dangerous. You're giving people a license for sin. Scott, what about the people who come forward and then go away and never return to the Lord? And what they're saying is that they once had it and then it was undone. And I'm saying those type of people never had it. But this doctrine is precious. And this doctrine is going to minister to you. And this doctrine of eternal security ought to sweeten your spirit to even obey the Lord even more. But he begins to launch a series of questions in Romans chapter 8. He asks and answers, if you will, five of them. We won't look at all of them. I'm just going to focus on the fifth. But look at them. It says in 831, here's the first one, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be, what? Against us. If God is for you in Christ Jesus for his death, then who in all of the world can come against you? In fact, I'll just put it practically right now to you. If he is for you, he's even for you though your conscience slay you. It could be that your conscience is against you. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean by that? Well, you just worry. You just worry if, if it's enough, if you love them enough, if you serve them enough, if you're changed enough and you battle with ongoing sin in Romans 7. But I'm telling you, if God is for you, then who, either an, a wicked person or your own conscience, be against you? In fact, look, he goes on again in 32. If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if Jesus died for you, the greater, then how will he not give you the lesser, all things? If he gave his own son for you on the cross in his death, how will he not freely give you all things such as heaven? In other words, he's just marshalling truth after truth to grant support to that. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who, who, can, who can come at you? Who, who can actually come into a court of law and bring a charge against you? Now, in my humanness and your humanness, and evidently for Kavanaugh, I guess a lot of people, Right? But in the, in the eternal security of the believer, who's going to bring a uh, charge against God's elect? Look at the end of 33. It is God who, what? 
justifies. In other words, you have, in terms of your salvation, entered into the courtroom of God. And he took the gavel, if you will, my water bottle, and he pounded it on his desk and said to you, forgiven for all eternity. Forgiven. He justified you. So what do you mean by that, Scott? Well, we've talked on that. It means that he declared you righteous. Right then, at that moment of your salvation, when he opened your mind and heart through the channel of faith, he justified you. He declared you righteous before God. And not only did he remove every sin you will ever commit, every sin past, every sin in the present, every sin you will ever commit in the future, he declared you righteous. It's a wonderful truth. So you can see it there. Who's going to bring a charge against you? Who can come into God's courtroom? Who could come into God's courtroom and somehow bring a charge against you? Almighty God is the one who declared you righteous in the righteous life of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one who can accuse you. There's no one who can come after you. So watch this. Not only did Jesus love you all the way to the very end of eternity. There is no end to eternity. But God Almighty declared you righteous. And oh, your conscience may afflict you. Satan may accuse you. At times the flesh may grab after your own heart. But listen, once he redeemed you and once he saved you, there's no one who could ever come into the courtroom of God and actually accuse you because he's the one who pounded the gavel on you in the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have been forever forgiven. Amen. This is divine security. You can't lose what he began. Faithful is he who began a good work in you, and faithful is he who will what? Complete it all the way to the end. The one who started you by grace is going to actually carry that grace. You can't come at God. I'm getting away from my subject here. Uh, But look again. He says in verse 34, who is to condemn? Like, who can really come after you? Christ Jesus is the one who died, 34. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ is seated, if you will, in a position of power, even now interceding on your behalf. So in verse 34, who's there to condemn you? What person? What fallen angel? What demonic activity? What person at your work? What family member, whatever you might say, who can come after you and condemn you? But he brings you to the final question, okay? The fifth and final question, that's where we are. Who, verse 35, shall separate us, I love this phrase, from the love of Christ? In other words, he loved you to the end, John 13, 1. He laid down his life for you, and now this question on the guarantee of our salvation, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is there anything that can pull you away from the love that the Lord Jesus Christ has set on you? In fact, look at the scripture in 35. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And what Paul is going to do is search the universe to see if there's anything 
that can separate you, separate me from the love of Christ. I mean, the question could be asked, what if under the battle of temptation, we fall away? You might have asked that. Scott, I'm, I'm here this morning, but sometimes I, I look to where our country is going, and there's many believers that I counsel that just wonder if they've got enough for the end. In fact, I know some people, maybe you this morning, who don't come to Christ because they're not sure they can live the Christian testimony. And, and so, who can separate you? What if I fall away? And hear what Paul is saying in 35. There's nothing that can separate you, okay? There's nothing going to make Christ stop loving you. And the focus of verse 35 is the love of Christ. The focus of John 13, 1 is the love of Christ. Now, I want to be clear here, grammatically, okay? There's some scholars who, you don't have to always know this. Uh, is this an objective genitive? Or is this a, you know, a subjective genitive first? Or an objective genitive. If it's a subjective genitive in the language, in either way, would be okay. If it's a subjective, it's your love for Christ. Is there anybody that can separate us from your love for Christ? But it's very common, and most scholars believe, and certainly I think emphatically, this is an objective genitive. Is there anybody that can separate you from his love for you? That's the question. If it's up to us, we may indeed lose it. But can anybody separate Christ's love from you? And the answer is you're going to see is may it never be and no. The focus here is not on your love for Christ. It's on Christ's love for us. And the who here in all these questions captures the pressures that threaten us to separate us from the love of Christ. Here's the question, is there anything that can separate us from him loving us to the end? And the answer is no. And I'm just going to marshal out two things. He gives, number one, some potential circumstances that can never separate us from the love of Christ. Then secondly, he gives potential categories that could never separate us from the love of Christ. So there's no circumstance, there's no category. Let's pick up, there's no potential circumstance that can separate us from the love of Christ. Look at his first uh, phrase there. He, and we'll just stop for a second. He said, shall, in 835, tribulation. Tribulation. In other words, can that do it? Can that pull you apart? I think the word is fascinating. Tribulation. It literally speaks of, of something being squeezed. Okay? both literally and figuratively. Something being squeezed. The word tribulation speaks of a pressure that burst. And we get this word tribulation from, in the ancient world, what they called a threshing sledge. In fact, in the ancient world, at the time, if you can picture this, I should have brought you a picture, of the grain harvest, there would be these stalks of grain, and the stalks of grain, you've probably seen that a little bit. It rises up, and then it flowers, in my opinion, just a little bit. And they would bring these stalks of grain to the threshing floor. And at that threshing floor would be a, I just would call it a wooden threshing instrument. 
So what is that? It would be like a sled. Picture that in the snow. But it was like a, like a sled, and it was covered on the bottom of that sled with strips of metal. And that sled would then be dragged over the stalks to separate the heads of grain from the chaff. And the instrument that they used was called a tribulum because it, as they brought it over, pressed out the grain. And it is a very vivid picture produced that word tribulation because circumstances frequently pressed down on people so forcibly, so unremittedly, that it seems to them as they're being threshed like stalks of grain. So Paul's just... Asking potential circumstance called tribulation. You're just being squeezed. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever just felt beat down? Whether it be in business, whether it be in family, whether it be in your own life. Maybe it's the devil itself. Maybe it's some kind of tribulation coming away. And here's all Paul's saying is that no tribulation. Even what you're facing this morning is going to be able to separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. He gives a second circumstance. Look at it in verse 835. He said, shall tribulation or distress, and we're going to move on these quick, quick, distress. The first circumstance conveys the pressure, I would say, of outward affliction. Tribulation from the outside. Distress here involves the idea of an inward stress. Interesting. You've got outward affliction, you've got inward affliction, and here the distress comes from a a, a compound word, it's stenos, and the word stenos just means narrow, okay, narrow, and it comes from another Greek word called koros, and that just means space, obviously, (laughs) you put them together, it just means a narrow space. It, It speaks of being hedged in into a narrow space. And always the picture when I think of that word distress is I used to read to my children almost nightly when we were growing up and I read them the children's pilgrim's progress. And as Christian would make his way onto the celestial city, he was in the gorge below and the valley below and the celestial city would be pointed to the top of the page and there would be just this small rickety little uh, path to take to the celestial city. But as Christian walked up it, it was almost like he was walking the plank, if you will, and on both his right and left were these mad, massive, wide, gorgeous, deep, deep ravines. And and that really is the picture here. As he would make his way to the celestial city, he was compounded by living in Vanity Fair, and it was a slippery slope with right and left around him. Here's the distress that Paul's talking about. This is the distress of a single mother seeking to raise her children apart from the father's presence, apart from the father's provision. This is the severe internal trials that we face, the afflictions, the sorrows, the deep valleys, the inward affliction. And all Paul's saying is, listen, there's no tribulation that can separate you. This is a promise. There's no distress that you will ever face that will remove the love of Christ from you. Thirdly, would you look at it? There's no persecution. Persecution, verse 35. That's just abuse for Christ's sake. Harm, if you will, that is relentless. It may be overt. It may even be subtle. 
In other words, it could not be getting a raise or promotion because of the cause of Christ and the words of Christ. There's nothing, Paul's saying, that can separate you from the love of Christ. Either persecution, even future persecution. It could be that you come in this morning. It's hard to watch the news, is it? Sometimes you just have to turn it off. And it could be that you come in this morning and it's just... It's not even present, it's future, and the future bothers you. He's just saying, listen, there's no tribulation, there's no distress, there's no persecution. Fourthly, just, it says, no famine, just means lack of food, hunger, to be deprived, if you will, that can separate you from the love of Christ. No, there's nothing in all of the world. Number five, he mentions nakedness. It's the idea here of being destitute. There's that not being able to provide the needed clothing for one's family. There, he's, he's kind of going all over the globe, if you will, to find a circumstance. He says, six, danger, danger. He uses the word eight times in 2 Corinthians 11. Remember that when he said, I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from wicked men. He experienced it all. Paul's just going through the litany of this circumstance. There's no nakedness. There's no danger. Number seven, there's no sword. No sword. And when he mentions the sword, obviously he's speaking of death itself. In other words, even death won't separate you. Can tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer to all of these things in verse 35 is a resounding no. No one can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. In fact, look there in the text it's italicized in verse 36 as it is written, and he's going to quote here, and he's going to quote here Psalm 44, specifically 22. For your sake, we are being killed all day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If you have time on your own, you can go back into Psalm 44. It is the righteous who are suffering in Psalm 44. It is those who are loyal to God who are suffering for him. These are the very ones who are subjected, if you will, to humiliation. And of course, this is not new. There is the history of the Christian church of those who are dying for their love for God and their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think I've, I've told you repeatedly, maybe I'll just tell you one more time, lest you get so comfortable, unless I get so comfortable and I certainly hope tonight we're praying for the persecuted church around the world. There were people that Patty and I were reading this last month whose family died because of the cause of Christ. So he says sword here and he alludes to Psalm 44. But what I've told you is that there were more people killed for their faith in the 20th century than the previous 19 centuries combined. It's not a misstatement. There were more people martyred in the 20th century, just the previous one, than the 19 centuries combined up until that point. And so I think Paul is just, he's just saying, can sword, can death itself? And the answer would be no, because look what he says in 37. He says, no. He says, in all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors. I love that phrase. 
Even if it came to sword, even if it came to death itself, he said in all these things, and it could be that he's beyond just the list of Romans 8, it could be the book of Romans, he said we're more than conquerors. It's an amazing Greek word there, you don't necessarily have to know this, it's hyper nakao. It's, he's adding a superlative, not just conquerors. He says we're more than conquerors. And that second phrase, nakao, you understand, we get our English word Nike from that, victory from that. We are, you are, super conquerors, super victors. In other words, there's no person, there's no circumstance, whether it be famine or persecution, tribulation or distress, that is going to make Christ stop loving you. You're more than conquerors. I could even translate it this way. We easily win the victory. We are super victors. And Paul is saying that all our sufferings and all of our trials and all of our persecutions and all of our circumstances, far from robbing you of any future glory, you are the super victors. In fact, every stepping stone, every trial, every sin, Romans 8, 28, is leading you towards even the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, Scott, how? I couldn't get away from this. How can we be super conquerors? Well, look at the text. Feed on this indicative. It says we are more than conquerors, conquerors through him who, what? Loved us. It's not you. It's not your strength. It's not your passion. You're a conqueror through him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us. And, and it's almost, he puts this, he, he puts it in the aorist tense, which means this. It looks like it's looking back. He loves us now, certainly, but through him who loved us, and he's pointing back to the cross, that Christ proved his love for you on the cross, and he's never going to let you go. Never. Never. So if people say, hey, you could lose it, how? How could you lose it? There, there is absolutely no potential circumstance that could ever separate you. Secondly, there's no potential category that can separate you from the love of Christ. Categories. Look at them in eight. You've seen this scripture before. Let's just talk on it for a moment. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able, I love this phrase, to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see that phrase in the ESV, opening 38, it says, I am sure. Maybe you have a translation that says, I am convinced. Or maybe you have that one that says, I probably should have looked it up, I am persuaded. But he says here, I am sure. He's persuaded, and then he lists Ten powers that, in a category, some might think can separate us from Christ. 
Let me take those 10 powers that he lists and just put them in five pairs for you, okay? Quickly, five categories. Number one, he said, there's no human element that can separate us. Number one, no human element can separate us. He says, neither life nor death. But it's actually interesting here, if you look at it, he says, neither death nor life. <laughs> we would sometimes say in, my, in our English, neither life nor death. But he actually says, it's neither death nor life. Uh, you say, what is the difference? I think he's just given the two possibilities of existence that lie before us. And maybe there's some of you who would say, gosh, I know if I die, I'm instantly going there, but I don't know if I have enough faith to hold on and live. No, 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 he's holding on to you. He says neither life nor death. Death is obviously, we call it an enemy, but that won't separate us from Christ. Psalm 23, remember that one, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no, what? Evil, comma, for thou art, what? With me. There's, death can't separate us from Christ. In fact, all death does is bring you straight into the presence of Jesus Christ. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. You say, how do we know this? Well, Paul assured us that in Corinthians, that death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of sin. And the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there's no human element that can separate you from him. Secondly, there's no unseen spiritual force that can separate us. No unseen spiritual force can separate us. Look at it in verse 38. He says, nor angels, nor rulers... If you will, look down at the end of verse 38, nor, he mentions that phrase, powers. Now you might say, what do you mean angels? Why would an angel want to separate us? Well, certainly a good angel wouldn't want to separate you from the Lord Jesus Christ. But as he reaches into these categories, he says, no angels, no rulers, no, no powers, no fallen angels. These are all of the, the words here that are mentioned. He's talking about the spirit world. He's talking about the fallen angels. You know, beloved, in Ephesians, our fight, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers. There's the thought. Against authorities, against cosmic powers over this darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Listen, some of you have even told me over the years you've had some weird dreams. Listen, I just want you to know, there's no fallen angel. There's no wicked power. There's no demonic spirit that can ever pull you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Ever. The other day, I was trying to find um, a football game. And I was pushing the channel. And I came across one of the Avengers. To me, the, the funniest one of them all. Thor of Asgard. And I'll tell you, all it takes about five minutes to watch one of those movies. And they're trying to create a contrast between good and evil, but I'm afraid that the evil is demonic. Me, okay? Like, that's just wicked. And if you think, people think, oh, that's kind of cool, the graphics, you're fighting not against flesh and blood, beloved. And they may look at that way and do the paranormal on a movie. But I think if we saw what were to happen when the demonic host is let out at the end of the age, 
we wouldn't think that's so funny. And I think what Paul's getting at, he says, there's no one who can separate you. And at times, they make sometimes the evil look so good that it's going to overpower the righteous. I want you to know Jesus Christ, amen, has already dealt him a death blow on the cross. And if you ever get in the back of your mind, in the recess of your mind, and you think, well, gosh, maybe at the end of the time, maybe within the tribulation, maybe with, listen, there's nothing that can ever separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. He is holding on to you. He's loving you all the way to the end. Nothing. Then he says, not only in that second phrase, that there's no unseen spiritual force, thirdly, there's no course of time that can separate us nor things present, nor things to come. In other words, whether it's present tribulations or unseen, uh, some unforeseen future, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, it might even be for you fear of the future. I know many people who've said that to me, Scott, I just pray that I can hold on at the end. Listen. I really believe, I don't want to be over the top here, we're just a generation away from persecution in this country. I think it can change on a dime. And I think what Paul's just saying here is there's no force that's going to pull you away. There's no course of time, either things present, he says, or things to come, even the future in your life. Then he even says there's no expanse of space that can separate us. He talks about height. He talks about death. I think here he's just capturing the thought of spatial categories. Do you remember that wonderful psalm? In Psalm, is it 139? Where he says, where can I flee from your presence? Where can I flee from your what? Spirit, it's kind of an interesting word. Where can I flee from your presence? The word presence is is the Hebrew term for face. Now, we know that God doesn't have flesh and bones like we do, John 4, 24. But he's just saying if God is all-knowing and all-seeing, and he is, and he's omnipotent and omniscience and omnipresence, where can you actually flee from his presence? And, and so Paul, the, the writer there, David, says, if I ascend up into heaven, you are what? There. Even if that dude, Elon Musk, creates some place, either in the ground below or heaven above, you, you're never outside of the presence of God. He said, if I ascend, and I think David's just talking kind of a, an expression, if I ascend to heaven, you're there, even if I make my bed in Where? Sheol, you are where? Even if I make, now there's two things. Either he's making his bed in hell, or he's just capturing the thought, I'm going to the deepest part of the earth. There the psalmist says, you're there. In other words, it's impossible to escape the presence of God by place. You can go to the highest heaven. You can go into the third heaven. You can go into the fourth dynamic, okay, of heaven. Mentioned in the Bible, or you can go into the lowest part of the earth physically, or you could even go spatially, if you will, into hell. And I've had many people tell me in witnessing to them, hey, if my friends are in hell, that's where I want to go. Listen, I'm telling you that even in the book of Revelation, in the presence of hell, is 
the presence of God Almighty. And I think David's just saying, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Then do you remember when he says, if I take the wings of the morning? What, what's he picture? What do you mean the wings of the morning? He's just capturing the sun rising on the east at the speed of light. Even if that sun rises at the speed of light, to the, uh, and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your what? Your hand will lead me. I can go up and he's there. I can go down and he's there. I can jump on the wings of the morning and travel at the speed of light. And even there, he's dwelling with me. There's no expanse that can ever separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. And I just want you to know that he's holding on. There's some people who say that although nothing from God's side this is what some say, that can separate us from his love. I think some would say, however, we can leave the faith. We can fall from grace. That's the argument. Oh, Scott, I might agree with you that the love of Christ will never wane, but our faith could wane. And I say to that, no way. No way. That's a dangerous Doctrine to teach children. That somehow it's up to you. You say, why do you say no way? Look back in Romans 8, and I'm out of time. He said, we know, he said that those who love God, all things work together for the good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified. Listen, he's going to take you all the way into glory. And he's holding on to you. Your eternal security depends not on your own fidelity to hold on to Jesus Christ. It depends on his firm grip on you. And if anything, as Paul Twist so adequately said over the weekend, you need to hold on to these truths. You need to remind yourselves of his mercies every day or you will become cantankerous. You will become contemptible to people. You will major on the minors and forget the bigness of what the Lord Jesus Christ has already done for you and his love that is set upon you. Listen, if you don't have assurance, I want you to flip it from what you're doing, what I call the treadmill. This is how it usually goes. Here's the treadmill. You jump on the treadmill, and you're on the treadmill. I call this the treadmill of righteousness. You jump on the treadmill, usually by the grace of God. I'm so thankful that God saved me by his grace, but somehow you jump on the treadmill in sanctification. And you get on that treadmill and put the time in, and then you get that treadmill where the floor begins to rise and rise and rise. And what was easy at one time, the incline starts to come, and the incline becomes greater and greater. And I've always thought that a lot of Christians jump on the treadmill of God's grace, but somehow when you end up in sanctification, you begin to put the incline on yourself, and you're battling against yourself, and you somehow think it's up to you to save you instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, he saved you by his grace and he's gonna take you into glory by his grace, amen?
And he is holding on to you. And there is absolutely no circumstance and no category that can ever separate you from his love.